Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Last week we hosted the first in a new series of live panel debates on the big issues of our time. The motion was now is the time to make peace in Ukraine. Speaking in favour were Peter Hitchens of The Mail on Sunday and Mary Dajewski of The Independent, and in opposition Svetlana Moronets of The Spectator and security expert and Times columnist Edward Lucas. The moderator was CNN's senior editor Nathan Hodge. Nathan has served as CNN's editorial lead both from Moscow and from Ukraine following the February 24th invasion. He joined CNN from the Wall Street Journal, where he was Moscow bureau chief and Kabul bureau chief. The debate was presented in partnership with On Frontline, a new platform bringing together journalists and experts to discuss events with a global perspective. I'm very delighted tonight to host this uh, debate, which I expect, from which I expect we should see some fireworks. Uh, and the, uh, the subject of the debate is resolved. Now is the time to make peace in Ukraine. Is it time to make a negotiated peace to the war in Ukraine, or must Putin's invasion be repelled at any cost? Peter Hitchens and Mary Dzerzhevsky will defend it. Edward Lucas and Svetlana Moranets will oppose. Uh, in terms of the structure of the debate, we're just going to start off with brief three-minute arguments from everyone, uh, starting with Peter. And then we're going to move to a little bit more of a freewheeling debate. This is not going to be a timed debate, where we're going to have what I'm hoping will be a, a much more free-flowing discussion about the points of the resolution. So I will start by introducing our very distinguished panel, Peter Hitchens journalist and broadcaster who currently writes a weekly column for the London Mail on Sunday. He has worked in Fleet Street for 45 years as a specialist in politics, labor affairs, defense and diplomacy, and education, as a foreign reporter and as a commentator. He was a resident correspondent in Moscow and Washington, and has reported from 57 countries, some of which no longer exist. His latest book on the destruction of Britain's grammar schools will be published on November 24th. Mary Dzerzhevsky is a leading British commentator on international affairs in general, and Russia in particular. She writes a weekly column for the Independent of London and contributes regularly to many other UK and international publications. She was Moscow correspondent for The Times during the collapse of the Soviet Union before moving to the Independent as comment editor, then correspondent in Paris and Washington. She was a member of the Valdai Group of Russia Specialists, 
a past honorary research fellow at the University of Buckingham, and sits on the advisory board of the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. Svetlana Morenets was a freelance journalist in Kyiv, covering the consequences of the Russian invasion. She hitchhiked in annexed Crimea to learn more about life under occupation and published a story about her experience in 2019. Now Svetlana works at The Spectator, writing about Russia's war in Ukraine. She is the author of the Ukrainian Focus weekly newsletter. And Edward Lucas. Edward Lucas is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He was formerly a senior editor at The Economist. Lucas has covered Central and Eastern European affairs since 1986, writing, broadcasting, and speaking on the politics, economics, and security of the region. A graduate of the London School of Economics and long-serving foreign correspondent in Berlin, Vienna, Moscow, and the Baltic states. He is an internationally recognized expert on espionage, subversion, the use and abuse of history, energy security, and information warfare. If you could please give a round of applause for our panelists tonight. And Peter, the floor is yours. I'm sorry, I can't see you because the lights up here are at an interrogation strength. I have, in fact, answered all the questions I'm going to answer now. Basically, name, rank, and number. But very swiftly, why peace? Why would anybody want such a thing? There are several reasons from, from my position and also from that of Edward, as I happen to know. Uh, the Christian imperative to desire peace over war is absolute. In the Beatitudes, as spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ on, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers is one of the most, uh, the most important statements of the entire Christian gospel, and it has to drive us if it doesn't drive anybody else. In the Psalms, the, the, God is not said to support the wars of men. He breaketh the bow and nappeth the spear in sunder and burneth the chariots in the fire. We are against it. Uh, in general, we, we would prefer almost anything to war, almost anything, because there are just wars, but they are few and far between. If that doesn't move you or engage you, then there are simple, uh, simple ethical reasons why anybody of any intelligence must be against war and in favor of peace. Nobody wishes to see happy, contented people turned into corpses and refugees, or their homes turned into ruins, and their, their schools and hospitals and cities ravaged by disaster. Uh, we're all here, I think, every single one of us on this platform, and before anybody attempts to say anything different, I will absolutely emphasize there is nobody on this platform who isn't against the barbaric, lawless, and stupid invasion uh, mounted by Vladimir Putin. And we're against it precisely because it is the eruption back into Europe uh, for the first time in decades of open and, and unashamed state violence and aggression uh, into, into our continent of one where we thought these things were no longer so. So anybody should surely want it to end, the question, of course, being how. Now, I don't think uh, that there have been many wars in history uh, which have been ended without negotiation of one kind or another, uh, even if it's only been negotiation between supposed allies. Uh, the last war uh, that was fought in Europe was ended with a terrifying negotiation between Joseph Stalin, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill, in which millions of people were handed over into slavery and secret 
secret police rule uh, to preserve the peace and prosperity of Western Europe at the expense of the East. And these shameful things do happen. I'm not proposing anything of the kind, uh, nor am I standing here to urge that anybody gives up any sovereign territory as a reward for violence. What I am saying is that the war must end. And I'm not alone in this. This isn't some uh, wild uh, Russophiliac position. Uh, in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, Emma Ashford, uh, who is a senior fellow of the Stimson Center and assistant professor at Georgetown University, argues that there is going to have to be peace. She says not immediately. I would only disagree with that. She points out all the things that are going, that, that are going hard for, it, for everybody in the world because of the, the war. But she also points out that Putin has chosen, and I'm quoting here, to take significant new risks rather than to back down, suggesting this war will end will not end through simple Russian capitulation, not end through simple Russian capitulation. I know many people might hope for that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. And okay, just one other small thing. She points out the enormous economic pressure which is being placed upon Ukraine uh, by this disastrous war and by the and, and, and a pressure which is going to take an enormous toll on Ukraine when reconstruction comes. And one final thing. As Winston Churchill said, democracy is more vindictive than cabinets. The wars of peoples will be more terrible than those of kings. My trade, the media, and the trade of politics are very, very good at whipping up enthusiasm for war. What they are terribly bad at doing is at whipping up enthusiasm for peace. And until they do that, then the pressure on the, uh, the people, either wicked or defensive, on whose shoulders the job of making peace falls will not begin. Therefore, it is important that the simple members of the publics of the Western nations begin to exert all the pressure that they can for the sake of those who suffer in war. Thank you very much, Peter. Svetlana. Good evening. First, I would like to thank you for inviting a Ukrainian to discuss what Ukraine should do. Yes, we want the war over, we want the killing to stop, but our position is there can be no peace deal with Putin, and I'm here to tell you why. This war didn't begin in February. We have been fighting Putin's invasion for almost nine years, with 45,000 Ukrainians killed before last winter. Some of you didn't know about this number because for the whole world there was so-called peace in Ukraine. Some of you believed Russian propaganda about civil war in Donbass. In, in reality, there were Russian mercenaries and Russian tanks. Yet still, Ukraine tried to sign many peace deals with Russia every time hoping it would work. Every time, we could fought war instead. When Putin invaded Crimea in 2014, the first peace deal was broken. It was Budapest Memorandum. In 1994, Ukraine exchanged its nuclear arsenal, the third largest in the world, with the security guarantees from UK, US, and Russia. Kiev was fooled because the West accepted the annexation of Crimea, attempting not to provoke Putin. So he got away with invading of Crimea and started the invasion of Donbass. Again, Ukraine was forced to sign Minsk agreements with Russia. While our army was following the ceasefire, Russian mercenaries kept shelling our army, and they massacred 1,000 of our soldiers who were unarmed, retreating from Ilovaisk. This retreat was another peace deal approved by Putin. So in February, when Russian troops were surrounding Ukraine, Zelensky asked Putin for peace, and he offered Ukraine's neutrality to give up our NATO ambitions. 
But Putin didn't care about that, and so he invaded, because his main problem is not NATO, it's not the protection of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. His main problem is our existence, because he calls Ukrainians and Russians one nation, and when we oppose it, he kills us. His main problem is our independence. He sees it as an anomaly, our culture as a threat to be wiped out. And now he's losing the ground war, so now he seeks peace. He asks Kiev and U.S. to start negotiations of, on his own terms. He wants Crimea and four of Ukraine regions. Also, he needs a pause to come back later when he is stronger. So he allies with Iran to get 1,000 more missiles. He recruits Afghan people, and he plans to come back next year with the replenished forces. We have learned from our past and also from Russian wars in Moldova, Chechnya, and Georgia that any peace deal negotiated with Russian troops in Ukraine would lead for him to come back for more later. But Western arms and Ukrainian courage makes us very close to winning the peace by repelling the invader. We do it thanks to one of our greatest friends, the United Kingdom, and we are very thankful for that. So tonight I would ask you, to stand with Ukraine, to send Putin a message, and to vote against the motion. Thank you. Thank you. And to Mary. Well, thank you very much and good evening. And I'd like to start by endorsing everything that um, Peter on my side has already said. And in a way, what I'm going to say puts a little bit more um, of the immediate and the practical to this whole question. And the first point I'd like to make, that if now isn't the time for peace, then when is? Fighting has been going on for eight months. At the moment, it's largely stalled. We're looking maybe at a major battle for the southern city of Kherson. Maybe the Russians are going to withdraw from one side of the river. We don't know. But it's simply not realistic for Ukraine to believe that it can not only win this war, but win more territory than it actually had at the beginning. It seems to me that at the very last, Russia will fight for Crimea, which it sees as essential to its own national security. So what we're looking at is either peace now. It's no good listening to people who say, oh, well, just wait a bit. There's no point in waiting. It's time for Ukraine to cut its losses. Ukraine, so far as I can see, was in its strongest position right at the beginning when talks were held on the basis of a return to the situation as it was before the February 24th invasion. The talks and the were talks were halted apparently with the um, encouragement, maybe under duress, from the people who by then had become Ukraine's Western backers. That includes the Americans, and Boris Johnson has been specifically named in this context. Now we're looking at Ukraine has lost an estimated 10,000 dead, though the figures, they're not giving out official figures, and they say that Russia has lost many times more that. For all its poor performance on the battlefield, Russia's overall resources are far greater than Ukraine's. Ukraine is losing a whole generation of young men to war, and it's losing a whole generation of young women to emigration. Is this really what the future of Ukraine is going to be? Third point, 
and I'm surprised in a way that I'm the first, uh, the first speaker to use this expression, but winter is coming. After the Kerch Bridge was attacked, which um, an act which I believe Ukraine was warned specifically by its allies not to do because of the possible repercussions, Russia changed its tactics and has started attacking power stations and heating plants. And it's all very well to believe that Ukraines will show the same spirit as the British during the Blitz and argue that the cold and the dark will only embolden them to hang on for longer. But I would say these are different times from then. Ukraine is a different country. And there could come a time when morale is battered and support for Zelensky turns. That would be a tragic conclusion to what's been a heroic chapter in Ukraine's history. Fourth point, the longer the war goes on, the greater the risk that Ukraine's allies run out either of the practical means or the will to carry on helping. It's a far easier exercise to supply Ukraine with weapons than it is to keep the whole country going, to keep it warm and fed through the whole of the winter. Physically, it may simply not be possible to do it. And then there's the question of a will. It's already looking across many parts of Europe, and I would say that includes this country, which has been an enthusiastic supporter of Ukraine, that war fatigue is starting to set in. It's all very well for Boris Johnson to say, we will only be paying higher energy bills, but Ukrainians are paying in blood. Thank you. But it sometimes sounds as though Mm. our leaders are actually representing Ukraine better than they're representing our country. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And Edward. Thanks very much indeed to the organisers for hosting this important debate. We're not here to discuss whether war is better than peace. The key word in this motion is the word now and possibly also the word make. Make implies that Ukraine will have its arm twisted in order to accept a ceasefire, other concessions, territorial losses, perhaps control of the education, um, the education curriculum, possibly some other elements of Russian control over its future. I'm all in favour of exerting pressure to end this war, but let's exert it on the aggressor and not on the victim. Some people think this war is a surprise, came out of a clear blue sky. Who could have possibly foreseen that this would happen? Well, this is what I call part of the war of the Soviet succession. What happened to the Soviet empire? It started with the wars in Moldova and Georgia in the early 90s, the Chechen wars, war in Georgia, and now the war in Ukraine. And it's fundamentally about choice. It's about whether these countries living in Russia's neighbourhood are real countries with real people and real languages and real dreams and real hopes and real fears and a real chance to decide their future. Are they just squares on a chessboard, the playthings of great powers that decide their futures? They have to suck it up, whatever fate delivers them. And I think that they are real countries and I really care about them. There's a very good quote from a friend of mine 
who I'm just going to read to you, people in the West did not know what this country's sufferings and sorrows had been or how reasonably concerned its people were about their security. So many times invaded, massacred, burned, starved and destroyed. We didn't know very much about Ukraine in 1991. It was part of that sort of Western Orientalism that reduces all the countries of Eastern Europe apart from Russia, which we do know about, to a kind of grey blur. But those countries are real and they really care about their future and they want what we've got. They want dignity. They want legality. They want freedom. They want sovereignty. They want security. That's what the people of Ukraine want. And that fundamentally is why they've been attacked. Because those things which we so take for granted here in the West are a deadly threat to the kleptocratic imperialist regime of Vladimir Putin and his cronies. That's fundamentally why he attacked Ukraine, because Ukraine is a profound competitive threat to his regime. Now, we've heard voices since the beginning of this war saying, make peace. Another friend of mine wrote um, very, with great conviction that this peace would come, uh, this is in August 1922, if there will one day be peace and it will be in terms rather worse than they would be if a deal was made now. Well, I don't agree. When talks happen, and I think they will eventually, they will reflect the reality on the battlefield. And the reality on the battlefield is the Ukrainians have confounded the doubters. They have fought with amazing tenacity and resource, determination and bravery against the invaders. Our own defence intelligence here in Britain thought they wouldn't last three or four days. And they withstood the first brunt of the Russian assault. They turned that round. The Russians retreated from north of Kiev. And since that was written in August 1922, we've seen large Ukrainian grains, tens of thousands of square kilometres regained, first of all in the Kharkiv region and now around the... Is that my time up? <laughs> yeah, that's around. four minutes. So let us stand with Ukraine. Their fight is our fight. They're fighting for what we believe in because they believe it too. Let's have peace, but let's have justice with Ukraine in the strongest possible position on the battlefield to get the best possible deal when negotiations finally start. Thank you, Edward. And uh, thank you to my silent little prompter here. As well. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Well, I wanted to pivot off of something that uh, uh, Edward was talking about, which is it's basically the question of agency. One of, I think we could all agree that one of Putin's gravest miscalculations was that he completely underestimated Ukrainian agency, its sense of uh, national identity. Uh, he doesn't believe that it's a legitimate uh, state and therefore was quite blind to how much Ukraine has involved, evolved since 
independence in 1991 and how much it's changed during the Orange Revolution, after Maidan, and so on, and as well as after the 2014 invasion. So a question uh, both to Peter and to Mary is, how does this end? How does one, for lack of a better word, make Ukraine come to the table if we're to believe that the bigger players here are, you know, if this is something that has to be a negotiation ultimately between Moscow and other powers, or is this something that, that can be resolved by bringing somehow Ukraine and Russia to the same table? And how can Russia be compelled to be brought to the table as well? Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy to take that because, in fact, it covers my last point, which I didn't have time to make. It seems to me that um, Russia has actually been putting out feelers in recent weeks to say that it would engage in talks. This has either been completely rejected out of hand, not reported, or simply ignored. Interesting that Russia reversed track on letting through the grain ships. After it had said it was stopping that agreement, it quietly came back. I think Russia wants to talk, and I think we should take, we should take them up on that. But then there's the question of the nice little phrase of no talking about Ukraine without Ukraine. Well, yes, I absolutely agree with that. Nobody should be negotiating over Ukraine's head. But the idea that other powers don't have a role in this, I think, is totally wrong because... Ukraine has only been able to fight thus far because of the assistance that it's been getting from the Americans, the British, and other Europeans in intelligence, in weapons, and in training. We could stop this war tomorrow, not on the best terms, but we could stop it by simply stopping the supplies. Now, that gives us leverage. Yes, it gives us leverage over Ukraine, but that is the leverage at the moment because it's Ukraine that is refusing to talk. That's the leverage that matters. Oh, yes, I, um, if I could just make one small and unpopular point here. Uh, this isn't wholly a war between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the American military assistance to Ukraine began in 1991, the year of Ukrainian independence, was hugely stepped up after 2014 a date which Slitter has rightly pointed out has enormous significance, though I suspect I have different views about its significance from hers. Uh, this is, uh, and Leon Pemessa, uh, a former CIA director, I think, uh, has um, said that it is a proxy war. And so have numbers of other people, including uh, Lindsey Graham, prominent senator, uh, who said four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person, or the last Ukrainian, as you might say. And uh, a Republican congressman from Texas, in support of the American effort, Dan Crenshaw, said he liked what was going on. Yeah, because investing in the destruction of our adversary's military without losing a single American troop strikes me as a good idea. You should feel the same. Well, these are sentiments that people are welcome to feel. In, in, we're free countries. People can talk and think like this if they want to. Uh, when they do so, I think people should pay more attention to them here and, and not to be beguiled into sentimental and oversimplified ideas of what is actually going on. Uh, ultimately, 
uh, the major powers which have decided for reasons which, again, we could spend all evening discussing and can't, uh, that they wanted a, uh, a, how shall I put it, a contest for territory, not necessarily a conflict in this part of the world, uh, might now see some interest in punishing and doing very, very serious long-term damage to Russia. Well, that's an opinion which they have. Uh, I don't happen to think it's necessarily an intelligent or constructive or useful one, but I think public opinion in the countries involved should ask what exactly is the interest of the major Western countries in promoting discord in what was already an extremely unstable and troubled part of the world, and whether they shouldn't think twice about continuing to promote it, given all the horrible things that have resulted. I'd like to see, uh, Edward, if maybe you could speak to the uh, argument that this is essentially a proxy war uh, between Washington, NATO, and Moscow. Uh, and as I recall, it was uh, Sergei Shoigu, the uh, Russian defense minister, who used the phrase, I think, uh, Ukraine was being stuffed full of weaponry in the days in the run-up to the... Uh, this was, I think, around the time that he was meeting with uh, Ben Wallace, the defense secretary, in the, the days preceding the war. And maybe you could speak a little bit to uh, what, as you had said, as you alluded to, uh, countries in the region think about where this goes next if Putin is not stopped. If only we had stuffed Ukraine full of weaponry, then there wouldn't be a war. If we'd given Ukraine one-tenth of what we're now supplying at such great expense and done that eight months ago, then the Russian military, the latest attack, wouldn't have happened. This war is fundamentally the result of Western weakness, that we didn't really care enough about Ukraine. We didn't really care enough about Russia. And we haven't cared enough about it for 30 years because we're naive and arrogant and ignorant and most of all greedy. And that is an enormous charge sheet to go against the decision makers in the West. I think that the, um, the countries that, that have been warning us since about 1991 about the trajectory of Russia towards repression at home and aggression abroad have, I think, earned the right to be taken very seriously because they've been right and they warned us again and again and again and we belittled and patronised them and ignored them again and again and again. So what are they saying to us now? Well, they're saying support Ukraine because if you don't fight Russia now when you've got a country of 40 million people on your side, you'll be fighting Russia later without Ukraine. Estonia, for example, a country of 1 million people, has devoted 1% of its GDP to the support of Ukraine in military and other humanitarian aid. Latvia, Lithuania done the same. Poland, far more, because it's a much bigger country. They're not so much in proportionate terms. Well, these are the countries that have been absolutely right about Putin again and again and again. Let's listen to them now. Svetlana, thank you. I thought perhaps, Svetlana, you could uh, respond to the way that Mary had summarized what seems to be what we've seen in the past few days of evidence of something of a climb down, for instance, by Putin with um, the return to the, uh, the grain export deal, at the same time that uh, power has been out in Ukrainian cities, the power grid has been attacked, and, and Russia has shifted some of its tactics to directly hitting civilian infrastructure. What would your family members say, or how do you feel when you hear the Kremlin being characterized as a rational actor? 
about my family when I called my mom when they were two days without signal, electricity, water. Uh, the first thing that she told me was, I'm ready to stay like this the whole winter. I just want them to leave my country. And that is the position of more than 90% of Ukrainians, according to the last poll. Yes, they are shelling our critical infrastructure, but we are ready for that. And our people are repairing them very fast. And Kyiv is preparing stations, power stations, uh, in criti for critical situation in Ukraine. So, yes, it is a big issue for Ukraine, but... Uh, this is not going to work. We are not going to give up because of that. But about the grain deal, uh, that Putin left it and came back in three days later. Uh, he was choosing between one humiliating option and another humiliating option, and he chose we know what. Uh, because uh, when drones attack his, the most safest base of the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea, he was furious because he thought that Ukraine didn't have such kind of weapons. So he left the, the grain deal and thought, okay, I'm going to leave the world starve and you are going to pray me to come back. You're going to give me Crimea or other regions. But UN, Ukraine and Turkey said, okay, we are going to continue with the grain deal without you. So Putin was left out and he had to choose to come back or not, but actually nobody cared. And in the end, he had to ask Ukraine to guarantee that we are not going to shell the grain corridor. And could you imagine that he would be asking us for that nine months ago? And Ukraine never shelled the grain corridor. It is not logical because the bases of his fleet are in Crimea. It is far. So Ukraine said, yes, we are going to continue with this deal, we won't shell your grain corridor, but we can't promise that about your fleet. Thank you. Um, Peter, I wanted to press you a little bit further on the point of proxy war. If this is indeed a proxy war between great powers, then is it, um, if, if we are talking about um, now being the time for peace in Ukraine, what are the levers of pressure that are supposed to be exerted on Ukraine? Are, are weapons supplies to be cut, or is there supposed to be another way? Well, I'm not talking about exerting pressure on Ukraine. I'm talking about exerting pressure on those, the, the governments of those countries which are using Ukraine as a battering ram in a project of their own, in my view, extremely cynically. And I, I want to rebut something which Edward said about NATO and the, the fear of other countries of Russia. Now, the, the expansion of NATO, which, of which Edward is a keen supporter, is not, a, is not a, an empty, neutral subject. It was opposed from the start, most particularly uh, by George Kennan, the architect, basically, of the successful strategy of the Cold War, which defeated the Soviet Union. Uh, he, he said in, in 1997 that it, was a, that it was a complete disaster which would, um, which would lead in, inevitably to crisis. And he, he, he said it was astonishing don't people understand, he said, our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime, and now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. And this is borne out. Uh, we're all told how much we're supposed to admire Democrats and liberals in Russia. One of those was Yegor Gaidar. 
Yegor Gaidar was so appalled and infuriated by the proposals to expand NATO that he went to his friend, the Canadian ambassador in Moscow, and said, could you not bring some sense to these people and explain to them that, the, that, that this development will actually increase the power and danger uh, of, of, the, of a revival of some sort of authoritarian dictatorship. He was completely ignored. The whole history of NATO expansion is not, in fact, one of, of, of reaction uh, to, to, to Russian threats. It simply, there simply is no sense in this. The NATO expansion issue is the only issue which has ever united Henry Kissinger uh, and, uh, and Noam Chomsky uh, on, on the same side. Both of them regard it as the most extraordinarily stupid thing. Uh, and and it, it has done nothing but harm. So we have, we have in, in the Western countries very powerful lobbies for NATO expansion, uh, one of which was actually measured by the New York Times at the time as a, as a lobby. And this is, this is not some crazy website. This is the New York Times as a, as a lobby of, of, of armaments manufacturers seeking business. We've had very powerful lobbies for, for NATO expansion in Western countries. And these have, have, have led, amongst other things, to this crisis we're now in. We need, as people in our countries, if we're seriously concerned for the peace of the world, and indeed for the good of our own countries and the good of Ukraine, to question our leaders a bit more about what exactly it is they're doing. Why have they fermented over so many years so much tension in a part of the world where there was no need to do so? Why have their actions led, and I think this is a very strong part of Yegor Gaidar's argument and mine, why have their actions led to the, the gradual destruction, diminution, and, and, and removal of the remaining Democrats in Moscow and the rise of autocracy there. I think that's what they've done. I think we, as responsible citizens in our countries, should question this a lot more than we do. Can I I, two points here I, I would like to ask Edward, if both you could speak to uh, the, the point about NATO expansion and the use and abuse of that, as it's one of uh, Putin's main grievances, and uh, the rise of autocracy. Nobody's made to join NATO. It's not like the Russian Empire where you're forced in at gunpoint. Um, the support for NATO is in the sort of 80 to 90 percent range, sometimes even over 90 percent in the countries next to Russia. And of course, Sweden and Finland have just banged very hard on the door of NATO because they want to be in too. There's a reason countries want to join NATO, and that's because they're scared of Russia. And the Russians have to ask themselves, what is it about living next to Russia that makes people so nervous about this? I think it's also worth pointing out that the worries about NATO expansion were taken extremely seriously in the 1990s, and that's why we have the NATO-Russia Founding Act and the NATO-Russia Council, the promise from NATO that in the circumstances of the time, they would have no nuclear weapons in the new states, no exercise in the new states, no outside forces based in the new states, and indeed no contingency plans in the new states. And that was a kind of low-alcohol NATO, NATO light. And that was something that was um, completely acceptable to a Russian leader called Vladimir Putin, who signed the Rome Declaration in 2002 at the summit which agreed the extension of um, the, the accept the applications of, of, of a num number of new countries. Russia chose to tear up that deal. It was Russia that conducted a military exercise in 2009 which rehearsed the invasion occupation of the Baltic states and finished up with a dummy nuclear strike on Europe. It was only after that that NATO started to take the potential defence of the new members seriously. So I deplore, like everybody, the way in which East-West relations have, gone, um, have gone, gone backwards. But the blame for that does lie with Putin, who I think has manufactured 
this NATO bogeyman because he needs something to distract attention from what's really going on, which is his colossal looting at home, the tens, hundreds of billions of dollars that are stolen from the Russian people. I think I will... I, I mean, I, I'm aware we could spend the entire evening discussing NATO expansion, but I just want to make one more point, which is that there is... Ukraine said absolutely upfront at the beginning of this war they were prepared to forswear for an indefinite period their NATO ambitions, which were unrealistic anyway in, this, um, in, 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 in the current context. And this was absolutely brushed aside by Putin. It's not the case that Putin is worried about um, Ukraine joining NATO. He's worried about Ukraine full stop for the reasons that Svetlana said because a thriving multi-party democracy based on the rule of law would be a lethal threat to his own regime because of the contrast it would pose. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I would like to follow up uh, with a question for you as well, Mary, and, okay. and, and to please respond to Edward. And if anyone had nuclear on their bingo card for the evening, they can thank Edward. Because this is one of the things that has come up, I think, in the discussions about why, the, the need for, the urgency for, uh, for seeking a negotiated end to this uh, war. I think the way that it was put in shorthand, if American boots are not worth putting on the ground in Ukraine, it's not worth risking the Third World War to confront Russia. Now, the opposite argument could be that's giving into nuclear blackmail. And what are the hazards of this? Well, I think the hazards are very, uh, are very obvious. And um, one of the things that has amazed and horrified me about this whole situation is the apparent calmness with which um, large numbers of a generation, several generations, which haven't known war in Europe or Americans... Um, first-hand in war, um, are calmly speaking about, well, you know, it may be Armageddon. Well, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, there was a real dread of nuclear war. And I think it's time we got back to that because there's a degree of levity with which this has been been discussed um, in recent weeks over Ukraine. Um, I also think that the small print of what people have actually been saying has not been examined closely enough because I've been looking quite carefully at what Russians, um, Russians in power, not Russian mavericks, but Russians in power, Putin and Lavrov, have been saying about nuclear nuclear war, and they have not been threatening nuclear war. Um, I've not even seen them allude to it as from their side. They have reported it as from the other side of saying that it's unacceptable. I'd also like to, um, just to respond to Ed, talking about Russia treating NATO as a bogeyman, as though this was somehow um, a complete manufacture, um, a a complete um, illusion on Russia's part. I would say, just look at the course of the war in Ukraine 
and ask whether Russia didn't have quite a, a realistic appraisal of its own weakness vis-à-vis Western forces. It's not even come across NATO yet because NATO is not, is not even supplying weapons as an alliance. Everything's been being done on a bilateral basis to avoid the impression that NATO is going to war. Russia is not even facing NATO. It's not doing well. When Russia looks at NATO and treats it uh, uh, and says the West is so strong, NATO is so strong, and treats it as a bogeyman, look at what's happened in Ukraine. It's right, isn't it? Svetlana, I wanted to uh, see if you could, uh, just following on on what Mary had said, uh, speak a little bit to, uh, okay, so we were talking about the specter of of, of the use of, it could be a tactical nuclear weapon, or it could be what uh, the Russians have been uh, strangely signaling by laying some kind of groundwork by warning that there could be a dirty bomb attack that Ukraine would somehow carry out on its own soil. But how seriously... um, you know, as a Ukrainian, do you take these threats? Are you concerned that it would possibly escalate to this level if, for instance, uh, Putin believes that those territories that he's illegally annexed are his and are legitimately under threat and that Russian sovereignty is at stake? My answer will be short because I think that Putin will nuke if he sees that the award that he will receive for that will be bigger than the price that he will pay for that. So if we allow him to nuke and we don't respond, yes, he's going to do that. And if his blackmail works and the West forces Ukraine to negotiate, it will mean more nuclear blackmail. It will mean more nuclear armament around the world because other countries will see, okay, this work. Look at Iran. He allies with Russia right now. He asks uh, Russia buys ballistic missiles and drones, and they give them the information about how to build a nuclear bomb. So look what is happening now. And if the country, big country, that has a nuclear weapon can invade their neighbor and the other democratic world doesn't respond, it means that all the others can do that. So we have have to choose. Or we answer him, we don't take his threats, or we will see the consequences. The same would happen with grain deal, for sure. I can't compare the grain deal and nuclear weapons. But he tried to threat Ukraine and UN, and it didn't work. We continued with the grain deal, and Putin did nothing. So I think he knows if he nukes, and if U.S., U.K. answer him, it will be the end of his power, the end of his regime. Then what is the sense for him to do that? Just the end of the world? He's the man who needs power, money. He's a dictator. He needs a country and more countries under his control that he tried to take control over Ukraine, over Georgia, or all his neighbors. And I want to give one more point about NATO, that if post-Soviet countries were feeling the threat from the NATO, they would join Russia, and they would not be asking to join NATO. Briefly, yes. But there's the equally disturbing possibility that he could uh, level a Ukrainian city by conventional means, much like Mariupol has been destroyed. Uh, 
Ukraine expects that if Putin nukes uh, our country or any other city, we expect that our allies will answer him. Because he is not going to stop in Ukraine. Because first, uh, the world ignored the invasion of Georgia, of Chechnya, of Moldova, of Ukraine. Who will be the next? I didn't want to turn this into a debate about uh, NATO membership. But there is one interesting point, which is that um, uh, Putin has had the unexpected knock-on effect of uh, propelling Finland and Sweden towards NATO membership. And this seems to explain one of the reasons why Ukraine would be a NATO aspirant, as well as, well as Poland yes, I, I think or the Balts. I find on our, on our side of the argument, most of us argue not merely that, that Putin committed a crime when he in, in, invaded Ukraine, but that he, he also made a serious mistake, and that was part of his mistake. He's undoubtedly created much more support for the Ukrainian state among the Ukrainian people, and he's solidified NATO, which was a pretty raggle type tangle alliance before this happened. Uh, I, I just wanted to challenge something that's important, not because I have wished to say anything unpleasant about Ukraine, because Edward uh, declared that Ukraine was a thriving multi-party democracy, and this in some way struck fear into Russia. I think there's been an idealization of Ukraine, and I'd like to read Edward some words um, in, in which he, 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 he describes um, President Zelensky, a man who, I, by the way, I, I've often praised for his bearing and courage and don't have any particular wish to, to attack myself, but uh, let me just read these words from him. Zelensky's main backer was Igor Kolomoisky, a tycoon accused by the FBI of involvement in a multi-billion pound banking fraud. Mr. Kolomoisky, known for displaying his pet shark as a means of intimidating visitors, has always denied wrongdoing. Ukraine's corruption, worse than Russia's in many eyes, has deep roots. Power and wealth are deeply intertwined. Among the public mistrust of the predatory state is in it, it is entrenched and all too justified. Oligarchs run media empires with politicians and officials on the payroll. The judicial, the judicial system is a festering mess where arrests, prosecutions and verdicts are used as score settlers between political and commercial rivals. Senior positions are bought and sold. Healthcare and education are plagued by kickbacks. The security service, the SBU, is infested with intrigue and sleaze and penetrated by Russian agents of influence. Do you recognise it yet, Edward? Because you wrote it. Absolutely, I, really I do. And can I, can, and can I explain? Because I should say rather meanly, I and mean, Peter's doing to me what I did to him earlier, those quotes I mm. came from the beginning. Well, mine's from, much more effective from than Peter. <laughs> um, but, that, but in a way, that's the point. You have this post-Soviet mess, this horrible starting point of kleptocracy and oligarchy and so on. But Ukraine is a country in which the incumbent, Petro Poroshenko, could lose an election by 25% to 75%. That was the margin by which Zelensky won by. Now, I was quite sceptical about um, many aspects of Zelensky's team and of his policies. But there's a fundamental difference between Ukraine and Russia. That in Ukraine, you have the potential to challenge the way things go, and you don't end up the way you would end up in Russia. And I think that this was really the trigger. So long as Ukraine was a corrupt <clears throat> oligarchic mess, it wasn't really a threat to Russia. It was because things, well, I think one of the triggers of the invasion was that Ukraine was really turning round. Ukraine was, was beginning to make a success of things. And this is what Putin can't stand. And I wrote this in a piece in, in January of, um, of, last, of, of this year, I said a successful Ukraine is a lethal threat to Russia and watch out because Putin won't allow it 
to become successful. I've been campaigning against corruption, incompetence, and bad government in Ukraine since, since 1991, since the moment of independence. I've been a very stern critic, but I've also been a very stern critic of what happened in Russia, and I can see the difference, and I think Ukrainians can, and actually Russians can too. I'd like to put, to put a question to both sides uh, about a subject that I don't think that we've explored sufficiently, and that is Russia itself. What kind of country it's become post-February 24th? Uh, has it, oh, uh, both with the, uh, the so-called partial mobilization, the, basically the complete uh, clampdown on any remaining freedoms of the press that existed, uh, and a general lurch towards what some have characterized as fascism, what happens next for Russia? Is it going to be a partner? There are some who would argue that, under, given the pressure that Russia is under, and the surprise uh, that the Ukrainians have thrown them, for instance, with the most recent offensive, uh, the difficulties they've had with mobilization, and the generally poor performance on the battlefield, so, uh, with a Russia here. With a Russia, that is the big question. Um, because I think there is a sort of illusion that says, wouldn't it be wonderful if Putin goes by whatever means um, and maybe the war will be a way of him leaving office, either being removed by a coup or resigning because it's been such a disaster or somehow Putin will leave office. Well, maybe he will, but what people need to take into account is that what follows Putin may actually be worse from the West point of view rather than better. And I think one of the things that we've seen in Russia at the popular level, not just at the leadership level, but at the popular level, is how close to the surface the bad sides of Russia still are. How Russia so quickly gets used to effective censorship, but also tries to, circum uh, tries to get around it. We've watched um, how some of the democratic freedom, not all of the freedoms that Russia enjoyed before the 24th of February, not all have gone. People are struggling mightily to, to keep some of what they had, but also you see how, uh, how much how much of the Soviet heritage is still there in Russia, in Russia today. And in particular, you look at how um, a large part of the intellectual class, all the people that it was hoped from the West might be the protesters, might be the people who, who, who campaigned successfully against this war. That's not happened. What has happened is that people have have almost learnt from their parents and their grandparents how to try and get around this, how to live with it, how to accommodate it, because they see no alternative. And for me, that is profoundly depressing. But getting rid of Putin is not going to solve that. Well, I completely agree with Mary on that. I've always argued that our problems with Russia predate Putin and will outlast him. But I slightly resent the idea that we're spending our... We should be discussing the plight of the victim rather than psychoanalyzing the perpetrator, it seems to me. That's what I was asked to do. Uh, Svetlana. Yes, thank you. It is just what I wanted to say. I can't believe that we are talking about poor suffering Russians while my people are being killed. It's really the time to discuss that. And also, 
Yes, uh, most of Russian media are pro-state, but so there are a few of them that are independent, writing from the abroad. And the polls that they made show that more than 70% of Russian Russians support the invasion. Have you seen... Okay, I understand that in Russia they can't protest because they would be in prison, beaten. Have you seen any Russian protest against the war in UK, in Europe, in US? Tell me at least about one, because I haven't heard about them. Because if Russians would really oppose the war, they would do that. And don't, don't tell me that poor them, all their lives, they just heard, they, they just heard lies from the TV. No, you have internet. We live in the 21st century. You have to know that your country invaded another country. So, yes, I, I, don't, I don't understand why we should talk about them right now and how it can help to make peace in Ukraine right now. I believe we are at the... Have I? Yes, please. Can I get a go? Thank you. Yes. One of the most joy-filled days of my life was in Moscow in August 1991 when I saw the Soviet Union collapse. I hated the Soviet Union. Uh, with a really very strong passion and I was delighted to see it collapse and it was astonishing to see in Moscow the exhilaration and delight at the end of the rule of the Communist Party and I remember two, you know, several things, one of them being that all the litter bins in Moscow which in those days in the centre of the city were grey urn shaped, were filled with, uh, with, with, with Communist Party cars, Pacini Bilias uh, red cars which, which were burning giving off a strange grey smoke, people had finally realised that this horrible thing was over. The thing about what happened in Russia in 1991 was that it seemed to me, because I'd also witnessed similar things in, uh, in, in Bucharest and Prague, it seemed to me that in Russia what was happening was that after uh, 70 years of communist tyranny, people were rediscovering freedom. And this was the most enormous convulsion I'd ever seen and the throwing off of one of the most wicked things that the world had ever known and a moment of pure delight. What astonished me soon afterwards is the realization that the, the collapse of the Soviet autocracy in Russia, although it was important to people in Russia and who, who, who wanted freedom, was nothing like as powerful as the explosion of nationalism among the former, the, the former subject states of the Soviet Union. And I always thought that democracy and freedom and the rule of law were far, far, far more desirable things than nationalism, something which I have to say in Western Europe we'd rather learn to be cautious of uh, in, in, in the last uh, 40 years. And it's been very worrying for me to watch uh, the way in which that, that flowering of freedom has been crushed, uh, often with Western support. We, 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 we supported Boris Yeltsin in the West when he sent tanks to shell his own parliament and when his police shot people in the streets for protesting against his government because he let us rape his country. And it, it, it's an extraordinary attitude. Uh, of course, Spitter is perfectly right to complain about absence of protest in Russia though, and, and, and by Russians, though I, I think that the moment for all that passed a long time ago because Russians associated democracy uh, with, with corruption and disaster and the loss of their homes and their jobs and the, 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 the turning of their society into a mass festival of thievery, which is what happened. And that is why many Russians re refer to democracy as demokratia, rather than demokratia, which means the rule of, let's say, excrement. Uh, they, they, that thing has gone now, and it was we in the West with our casual 
stupid, contemptuous attitude towards Russians, which I think played a very large part in it, an attitude which is still reflected in much of the treatment of Russia uh, since the expansion of NATO was decided on as a policy. Foreign policy matters, as Roderick Braithwaite said, foreign policy matters because it affects foreigners. Our foreign policy towards Russia has affected the course of events there, and if it's not now the free law-governed democracy, it really, really ought to be. It's partly our fault. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I believe now we have a microphone and we are opening it up if we can see past the interrogation lights. Yeah, um, thank you all very much. I've taken a lot of notes. Um, the name is Ewan Grant. Uh, I am known to several people on the panel and I can assure you my work in Ukraine, Moldova, and the Baltic states in the first decade and a half of this century, including just before and after the Maidan, very much mirrors what Edward said. I know how enormously respected he is and why, uh, not least the conversation with the head of the border guards on the west side of the Narva River in Estonia. My question for you all is, what kind of peace are the Dnipro River oblasts of Kherson and Zaporizhia part of Russia? If so, why? If they are not, why not? And specifically for Mary Dajewski, um, your upcoming critique of the Swedish report on the damage to the pipelines what indicators do you use, if ever, to say there are reasonable grounds for calling Russia culpable? MH17, Litvinenko, Skripal, etc., etc. Thank you. We have uh, part of the question to Mary. <laughs> um. Right, well, uh, um, to do the classic thing and answering the second bit first, um, you have to ask, with, with, with the um, sabotage of the pipeline, in whose interests it was that it was sabotaged. And it does not seem to me that it was possibly in Russia's interests for it to be sabotaged. Um, you have to look at the movements of military around the time. You have to look at exactly where it happened, which is a very interesting place, sort of um, Sweden, Denmark, in the Baltic region, where they do, where there is a quite a lot of espionage activity the whole time, and b where there is quite a lot of um, where military manoeuvres and that sort of thing. So I don't think it's unreasonable um, to suggest that it wasn't Russia that sabotaged its own pipeline. Um, I'm very happy to um, broach other possibilities, but we could be here for a lot, long, uh, for, for a lot longer. So, Sorry? Well, I mean, I would, I would also refer to the, to, to the other cases that you mentioned, and you, you do something which is very common which is to lump all these things together, Litvinenko, Skripal, this, that, and the sabotage, and the MH17, and all that. To me, they are different. And I would specifically mention the Skripals. Well, it took 
nine years to have an inquest which became an inquiry on Litvinenko. What were the British authorities doing? That was completely contrary to British law and regulation that it took so long. Skripals. What have we heard about Skripals? Where are the Skripals? They are, we left them, however many years ago, still alive. We have not seen them since. They were on British territory. That, to me, we, we have disappeared two people who were in Britain. We have had no explanation. So I think there's a lot more to, to all these cases. Um, and, you know, I would be very grateful if, if a lot of investigative journalists in this country who do all sorts of things in a very small, minute detail, they would look in, rather, in the same minute detail at these rather bigger questions that involve the British state. And so the first part of your question about whether Kherson, Zaporizhia uh, could be considered... Oh, did yeah. I hear correctly? Can, can I, can, sorry, can I, can yeah. I go back to that? Um, because I did have um, a suggestion for what I think should be the, the minimum um, of any, uh, uh, any piece. It should be that, first of all, at best, it should go back to the borders as they were before, before the 24th of February. Ideally, the Minsk agreements, which I know, you know have come under all sorts of criticisms, they are actually the best solution for, for the whole Ukraine question. The third is that I think it's going to be almost impossible for Crimea to be on the table. That has to be the subject of some sort of separate deal. But above all, what's got to happen is that Ukraine has to end up with a reaffirmation in the strongest possible terms of its status as an independent sovereign state and that it should have security guarantees. This time, security guarantees that are worth something, not the security guarantees of the Budapest Memorandum, which people hardly knew about when once they'd been breached in 2014. It was, I think it took about 48 hours for the British Foreign Office actually to come out and say what they were. Sorry, can I say? Well, I think yes, please. Sorry, you are proposing that the best option for Ukraine is to sign another Minsk agreement that we had for eight years and we were constantly shelled and we couldn't respond because... We had to follow the agreements. If we didn't, we, had, we would have a big problems, but Russia doesn't care about those problems. So we will have another Minsk agreement when Russia is shelling us, and we just stay and watch? I could also... It seems to me odd that the, if Russia wouldn't obey the terms of the Budapest Memorandum, why would we trust Russia to obey the terms of some future deal? And if the security guarantees to Ukraine are actually credible to the point that we would actually go to war to defend Ukraine, how is that different from the NATO membership, which is the casus belli supposedly for Russia? The Budapest Memorandum, but um, Svetlana alluded to earlier, which was in exchange for uh, uh, when Ukraine gave up its uh, what, the nuclear arsenal that was stationed on its and territory. Unconditional guarantees of Ukraine's freedom from coercion or from uh, of its territorial integrity and didn't have any footnotes saying that's assuming you don't elect a government that Russia doesn't like. And mm. also, sorry. Oh, I, I, want, I want to give the floor to yeah, uh, I'd, I'd, more I'd questions. I'd like to remind again myself at some point, but no, I, I'm, I'm, I don't mind being forgotten, but it's getting a bit... No, no, no. no. Um, 
Look, the, here's one thing. Edward spent about 300 years telling us that Russia was a terrible, menacing military power and it was going to stamp all over Europe. And I've read his articles for so long that I've grew a beard uh, saying this. And there's this curious thing about the, the new Cold War merchants saying that Russia was a terrible threat. When it turned out, in practice, that Russia was, as I had argued in opposition, actually a decrepit military power, not capable of making much of an impact with, a, with an army which was not really much better than it had been before, nor particularly well equipped, and that Russia's GDP and economy wouldn't sustain the sort of weaponry and, and armaments which would make it a major threat. When this turned out to be true in, in practice, did Edward revise his position? No, he still goes on as if Russia is a major threat. One thing which this war has proved beyond doubt is that Russia's threat to the West and to the members of NATO is actually a bogeyman. Russia has been stopped without NATO even intervening. And it is simply not legitimate to continue to argue this. This will affect whatever peace talks eventually take place. Russia's status as a threat in its own eyes and everybody else's eyes has been hugely weakened. Whatever negotiations take place will be influenced by that fact. People will know absolutely for certain what Russia is and is not capable of. And that means that in negotiation, Russia will have to give things, quite major things in my view. But if we want peace, what, what is it that we, we want? We want, of course, people to be living side by side, not in conflict with each other. It took the French and the Germans quite a while to cope with that problem, but they seem to have come around to it now. One of the problems of Ukraine is that, especially since 20, 2014, and the, the violent mob putsch which overthrew its legitimate government that year, especially since then, a particular type of very militant nationalism has been predominant in Ukrainian politics, rather than the sort of, uh, sort of civic nationalism uh, which, for instance, you find in Scotland, where it is not about ethnicity and where the, 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 it is much more easy for people to live uh, in Scotland who are not, who are not totally Scottish uh, than it is for, it seems to me, for Russian speakers particularly, and I know there's a constant confusion between Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, people who aren't as Ukrainian as the people who live around what I call Lemberg. The problem with Ukraine as it is, is that it needs to find some way of integrating those citizens into itself as a civilized country where they feel welcome. Half the difficulties arise from this. So those are two things which should be considered in any peace agreement. Minsk is actually not a bad basis if people take it seriously. The problem is Russia didn't take it seriously, and nor did Ukraine, because Ukraine, under American influence, didn't think it had to. Now, after this, both of them have learned quite a big lesson. They might take it seriously now. We should try to make them. I would like to get to another question, but I do think that there was a, a response to the virulent nationalism. Peter, when you call Ukrainians nationalists, you make us a compliment. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yes, because... In Ukraine, nationalism means that you love your country and you will die for your country if someone comes to invade it and to kill your family, to steal your house and to steal your lands. So yes, it is what we call nationalism in Ukraine. And, and Bandera is our father? Do you sing that? Do you sing that? Can I, can I just, before we get on to that, can I just say, no, of course, no, the, let's get on to that. the absolute epitome of this virulent 
ethno-nationalism, which we should be so worried about, is that Ukrainians, by a majority of 75% to 25%, elected um, someone who is, um, with his roots, Russian and also Jewish, which I think some, somehow gives the lie to this. But with Peter's permission, because he has said it's not legitimate to make this case, but I would continue to do so, uh, the, I think I've been completely vindicated. I've been worrying about this since the 1990s. Um, the threat from Russia is a mixture of capability and intent, and the um, capability is indeed not um, as good as Putin thought it was, because he thought he was going to knock over Ukraine in three days, but the intent is absolutely there. And let's listen to the Estonians and Latvians and Lithuanians and Poles and Swedes and Finns and Czechs and Slovaks and Romanians and others who are all saying, not just me, we told you so and we are scared. So don't, thank goodness, you know, and I might ask Peter this, if you're an Estonian, wouldn't you rather be in NATO, given what's happened? I, I, sorry, I had a correspondence with Edward about this very thing. I wish I still had copies of it in which I said, okay. you're, you're overrating the, 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 the military power of the Russians, and you completely rejected my point. I said they were incompetent and drunk and no use, and uh, their, their aeroplanes fell off their ships and they weren't the threat that, that he said they were. He, no, 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 they're, they're really up there. So you can believe what you like about that. But if you're uh, an Estonian, well, wouldn't you rather be in NATO? Sorry? If you're an Estonian, wouldn't you rather no, be I in mean, NATO? I, were you there? I can't remember. I was in, I, was in, uh, this is, I know it's Estonia, it's Lithuania. I was in, in, um, in Vilnius the night the KGB went wild in January 1991 and, uh, and, and shot a lot of people. It's the first time I saw what a human head looks like after a bullet's gone through it. And I know all about that. And it's perfect, it's very striking. Uh, I, I'm sure you remember the dates, I could look them up, but uh, the, the, the length of time between the independence of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, and they're joining NATO. How long was it? They joined NATO in 2004, and they Okay, were... so that's 13 years, during which there was no threat. They were systematically Systematic. menaced by Russia they throughout that period, which is why they wanted they to join. Not threatened with My question, answer the question, Peter. If you were an Estonian, Latvian, or Lithuanian, would you or would you not want to be in NATO right now? Yes or no? No. Since you are. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, and, I've, said, I've said I don't think Britain should be in NATO, so I don't see why anybody else should be. <laughs> That's going to be the next debate. Having a, and, uh, so having a, a, an alliance against the Austro-Hungarian yeah. Empire, why, um, why have one? Uh, the, the woman here. And we can have a separate conversation um, about Bandera afterwards. Uh, so my question is about what about the financial cost so far of the war? It's about a few trillions. And also, what's the reason of the UK taking part of the war? Because we're talking about the Russian donors uh, when it comes to the Conservative Party. So how, what was actually the reason that uh, Boris Johnson started the war in Ukraine was it because he wanted to shift the attention from, uh, obviously, the scandals, the party gate? Um, that's a... Uh, thank God I don't cover British well, politics, can, because can I, I don't know. Can I just say that the, the threat of Russian dirty money in this country to our political system and to many other things is enormous, and that's one of the things I've been banging on about for the last 30 years. And it's, although Boris Johnson um, acted commendably to send military support 
to Ukraine. I wish we'd sent more and sent it earlier. Um, it's the biggest blot on his record, I think, is that the Conservative Party, under his rule, um, or his leadership, became even more dependent on Russians, who I won't mention by name, um, because they sue, and that's another problem. Um, but we have a serious problem this, in this country with Russian, with Russian dirty money, and to me, that's the big thing about the new Cold War. I said, if you think that only money matters, then you're defenceless when people attack you using money, and that's what Russia has done, and we see in Germany and other countries exactly how much influence they've got and how, much, how damaging it's been. I look forward to your campaign for a new Cold War against Saudi Arabia in that case as well. So, so I have a question here. Partial. Or... Saudi no, no, Arabia. That was, that was that, it. That, 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 was, that was it. Well, I'll shout very quickly. And just to quickly retreat, 40 or so years, uh, Thatcher uh, got in real trouble with Tory Hycon by saying that Gorbachev was a man that she could do business with. Essentially, I'm sorry to boil it right down to its simplest form, but isn't this the fact that the employees that in the very red corner is a sign of we can't ever do business with Putin? The blue and grey corner, Marianne, is we can have business with Putin. Um, isn't that very simply what deceiving is all about? These two. No, absolutely not. We can't never do business with Putin. No, I, I, your, 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 your premise of your question is fundamentally flawed because we did business with Brezhnev. Actually, we did business with Stalin, as Peter mentioned earlier. We do business with, with, with lots of people. And we can do business with Putin on some things. We've done business with him over the, over the grain deal. You always do business with people. The idea that there are people who we do business with North, North Korea, um, that's what diplomacy is about. The question is what the balance of, to use the Marxist jargon, what is the correlation of forces behind the diplomacy? And that's what we're arguing about. Can I, can, can I, can I come in here, please? Yeah. Um, it seems to me that um, that is a quote which is always repeated, and it is not put in its context, because that quote immediately follows something that Margaret Thatcher said, which was, we come from completely different backgrounds. We disagree fundamentally on major principles. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what she said. And then she said, but we can do business together. And that seems to me to be the key to whether you're going to do business with Putin, whether you're going to do business with with the US or anybody. You start from a realistic appraisal of where you differ and then say, okay, what what, what can we do together? Um, And I think that that realistic approach which accepts there are differences and disagreements, often very profound ones, nonetheless those can be overcome so long as you recognize that they're there. Ukraine is ready to start negotiations with Putin when he shows, when he proves that he wants it really because one day he asks us to start negotiations and another day he launched 100 missiles into all Ukraine. So about what negotiations we are talking about if he even doesn't take it seriously. I'm mindful of the time here. Uh, One more question here. The gentleman, yes. Two brief questions, and one for the proponents of the motion. NATO is a purely defensive alliance. That is its only justification, its only, ration, its only rationale. Um, it, it wouldn't be in place if Russia didn't, wasn't perceived as threatening its neighbors. It would probably have withered away by now. Please comment. And a question for the opponents of the motion. Um, 
at some stage, Ukraine surely has to negotiate peace with Russia of some kind. At one point, should it do that? And should Crimea be left as part of Russia? Thank you. Okay, NATO is not a defensive alliance, and you can ask people in Serbia about that, because they were bombed by NATO, including quite a lot of civilians. Likewise, Libya, uh, where NATO was also used as an offensive alliance. And I might add, uh, you could call its role in Afghanistan, which is about as far from the North Atlantic as you can get, uh, offensive too. Uh, it's, uh, it's a myth to continue to call it that. It hasn't been for some time. Uh, it was a defensive alliance in the days when I supported it. Uh, against a, a great deal of liberal opinion. I live in Oxford. Almost everybody I knew thought that I was crazy to support nuclear deterrence in NATO. I even got a NATO sticker to put on my car to annoy them. Uh, but that was when NATO was, was a serious uh, defensive organization, which actually never needed to lift a finger because it was such. Uh, it's now, it, it, it was an organization against the threat from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, both of which have ceased to exist long ago. Continuing to maintain it is like maintaining a, a, an alliance against Aust Austria-Hungary. Uh, the, the, the threat which it was designed, designed to face is long ago gone. And NATO is a fascinating piece I recommend you written, I think, 20 years ago by Roderick Braithwaite, the best ambassador this country ever sent to Moscow uh, in, in, uh, in Prospect magazine, in which he, he, he describes that there were actually some people in NATO who were seriously worried uh, that unless it expanded, it, people would begin to ask whether it should exist at all. It was a bureaucracy that needed to sustain itself. And it was, in my view, a grave mistake to sustain it at all. But if Russia were not perceived as a threat by so many of its neighbors, do you think that the nation will seriously continue? I think that George Kennan was right. I think that the expansion of NATO created the very danger it was, supposed to, it was supposed to protect Europe against. The whole tension which has come about since NATO was expanded, especially after George W. Bush's crazy announcement that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO at the Bucharest summit in, in 2008, they, those created the conditions in which war came. Uh, and I'm not saying that, it, that the, this is not some kind of excuse for the invasion. I make no excuse for the, the invasion. Robert Kagan, the wife of Victoria Newland, who you will all know, famous for her, excuse my language, fuck the EU telephone conversation and prominent in the, in the anti-Russian effort, her husband Robert Kagan says that the, that the invasion was provoked. It's a disgusting invasion, he says, and it's completely, it's completely indefensible, but it was undoubtedly provoked by Western policy. And a huge part of that Western policy was the crazy uh, scheme supported by Edward of pushing NATO ever, ever further eastwards, and especially uh, the 2008 summit and what followed. We have, none of this was necessary. Uh, the people who are now dead and refugees might now be alive and happily living if it hadn't been for, for, for the militancy and folly of some Western statesmen who thought they were cleverer than history. And the, I'm sorry, could you just repeat the second question to this side? What, what are the terms of peace and would Crimea be part of it? Can I ask what it is? Uh, Crimea will be Ukraine because first in 2014 it was illegally annexed by Putin's armed forces and second by cutting off a slice of Ukraine will mean that we justify all those terror that Russia made in Bucha, Mariupol, Hostomel and all other Ukrainian cities. So my answer is Crimea will be Ukraine. We'll end this debate with a show of hands and a vote. Do we have a summation? We, do we, I don't think that we do have a summation, but if... I would rather not. I have a train to catch, I'm afraid. Trains to catch, well... Can I say this? Some, I'm sorry? 
I think if, if we're not going to do a summation, but if we could just do a show of hands, those for the resolution, now is the time to make peace in Ukraine. Right? I'm very poor at counting crowds, but... And those who are against? Two to one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all. If you could please give a... should announce something, because they can't see. Well, oh, okay, so, <laughs> that's right. Well, let's get the OSCE let's... in to count it. Uh, no, no, please didn't get... I, I would say that the, the opposed does, uh, did, get, did have more hands in the air. Yeah. And thank you very much to all of our panelists. And thank you. This episode of the podcast was presented by Nathan Hodge, and the guests were Peter Hitchens, Mary Tajewski, Svetlana Moronets, and Edward Lucas. Special thanks to Pranvera Smith of On Frontline, who partnered with us on this debate. You can join our next panel debate in person in London on the 21st of November. The motion is, economic growth is a catastrophe for our country and our planet. And don't miss Chelsea Manning on the 17th of November. She'll be in London for a conversation with Hannah McInnes. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>